We are here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in London for episode 69 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Agents Fail Crypto Exams, Goldman Sachs invests in BitGo, and Voldemort finally shows up in crypto. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. If you haven't already figured, I'm Sarah Feenan, your host for today. Simon is away again, this time at Money 2020 USA in Vegas. So if you see him, go and say hi. I'm not alone this week. I'm joined by Noel Aitchison, media producer at Coindesk. Hi, Sarah. Great to be here. How are you doing? And Vinay Gupta of Materium. Hey, folks. And we might not have Simon Taylor, but we do have Tina Baker-Taylor, friend of the show instead, who is on the Global Digital Finance Advisory Board. Hi, Sarah. Okay, so on to today's first story. This one comes from timesofmalta.com, which many of us may not have read anything from before. But the story is... I read it every day, Times of Malta. The story is that two-thirds failing cryptocurrency agents exams. So under the Virtual Financial Assets VFA Act coming into force in November, financial services practitioners looking to act as agents in the field which includes cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, had to go under a short, undergo a short training course and sit for an exam, first of which took place in September. So the sources said about 250 lawyers, accountants, auditors sat for the exam. The exam consisted of sev- a series of multiple choice questions to be graded with a negative marking scheme. Once the papers were graded, it became clear that the pass rate was extremely low, leading the authorities to scrap the negative marking scheme in a bid to increase the number of passes. And even after that, the pass rate was 39%. Shocking. So what do we think about this? Do we want it to be easy, easy? And what is it these people will be responsible for? So they will be responsible for... Launching cryptocurrencies, as well as uh, other services such as brokerage, portfolio managers, custodians, nominee service providers, e-wallet providers, investment advisors, and cryptocurrency exchanges. So those are the kind of areas that we're looking for people to, or these agents are looking to act in. Um, So I had a quick look into it. I didn't find any examples of the practice exam, but it does cover two layers, one of which is cryptocurrencies and the other is uh, securities under MIFID II. Um, So it kind of makes me wonder which part is being failed yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. Because, I mean, if they're filling the cryptocurrency stuff and it's a bunch of serious financial professionals that just don't quite know the difference between BTC and LTC, you know, that's something where you fill in gaps in the knowledge and it'll be fine. But if the problem is that it's a bunch of former Beanie Baby traders who are attempting to make their way through MIFID 2, uh, that's going to be a bit harder to fix. But I, I think that it just highlights the fact that we do need to shift the wheat from the chaff or, you know, whatever the saying is. If... To answer Noel's question, you know, should it be easy? Well, no. I mean, there's a number of tests that are uh, issued by an accreditory uh, agency. Um, so if you have your IFA or your CFA or, you know, your Series 7, you take a test, you need to pass it. You need to be able to understand if you're providing agency um, for third parties or consumers, you should know what you're talking about. So I do wonder, you know, is this test really hard or is the aptitude? of these people taking the test just lacking and if it's the if it's the latter then they should fail and take it away just like you would at the bar mm-hmm. and go take a barbary class and come back and take the test again 
What's, yep. what's really worrying, though, is what this says about the credibility of the test in the first place. If the regulators, the people administering the exam, weren't happy with the results, they changed the marking scheme? I mean, what That's does that say about most concerning. the credibility? And is the European Union going to step in here? Well, so my takeaway from this is we have been speculating um, about how you know, robust the governance in Malta is going to be. So, you know, the framework looks good. Um, You know, the regulator has been courting, you know, people to to come to Malta. Um, You know, we hear, you know, Binance is going to go to Malta. You go, "Mm, let me take a step back from that and see how flexible is this regulator going to be? Nope, no, everybody's going to be held up to the same standards. And this is very early in the process. And they're already manipulating the process to try and get a higher pass rate to ensure that they have agents that that can facilitate um, the ecosystem. So to me, this just points towards some of the skepticism that we had in the beginning about how up and up is this Maltese regulator going to be. Interesting. So uh, we watch this space for more information on the Maltese test. So the next story is from Coindesk.com, an Australian ICO project has announced its token sale has been halted by the country's securities regulator. So the project initially gained public attention in August ahead of its public token sale, thanks to an endorsement by well-known cricket player Michael Clark, who announced his involvement in the project in a tweet at the time. The regulator said that certain token sales have been paused for restructuring in order to comply with applicable legal requirements, while others were actually ordered to halt completely, and those ones were deemed possibly deceptive. So what do we think about this? So we have uh, a regulator that's intervening in public token sales. Good, bad? It's great to see that's not just the SEC that has teeth. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of things. The first thing is they wanted, they intended to raise between 10 and $50 million. So that's a big range. Do you need 10 or do you need 50? So I mean, I, I'd like to understand, do you have a good sense of what your project is trying to deliver? Because that's a big old gap of money, number one. Imagine the Australian regulators also would like right? to understand like, that. Ha- tell me what you actually are trying to do here, number one. Number two, um, I think that there are a number of projects, especially in this, this region, I know of one in particular, that just raised $65 million, um, went out to market quickly before the regulator stepped in and now they're having to back up and I think this article also talks about refunds so in this other project that will remain nameless um, because they have already done the token generation event they've got the money but they've not issued the tokens because now they're looking at going back and basically remediating the process that they did because they've now identified that it is in fact a security so I think it's promising to see that one people are trying to clean things up a little bit and two, that regulators are saying, hey, hang on a minute. You, just because you did this, you're either going to give the money back or you're going to do it the right way. I mean, I think this is the thing that I've been most afraid of in this space is that you're going to wind up with, you know, multi-billion dollar disgorgement processes where ICO after ICO after ICO after ICO is just rolled over by the regulators and told to send the money back. And when the money is sent back, it'll be worth like 3% of what it was when it was originally sent out. If they have out. the money to send back. Well, there's a limit how fast you can spend $50 million, right? I mean, there, there are... I don't know about you, but <laughs> <laughs> I can spend it. I think that, you know, the vast majority of these projects, if they err, they're erring on the side of large development teams that are not terribly well organized, uh, 
tons of hiring of media people, you know, and basically large team work activity. I don't think there's that much of people ICOing and then buying Swiss chalets, mm. right? I mean, plenty of people that made their money trading Bitcoin or providing services like brokerages and this kind of stuff. Plenty of those people are living the high life, but most of the ICO people are under quite a bit of scrutiny from their token holders. And if they are seen, you know, in the kind of, you know, let's just move the whole team to Monaco, it's really nice down there in summer kind of mindset. I think they tend to get their wings clipped pretty hard by the communities, which causes you, so a collapse. Do you, in token you really price. believe that the token holders are holding them to account? Because in this, not global tech, but this other project that I recently um, became aware of, the 65 million raise, the token raise was done in March. As of today, the tokens have not been issued. And my first question was, aren't the purchasers wondering where their tokens are? I mean, it is like seven months later. And they said no. No one's asked them for their tokens. Yeah. Because, I mean, they're looking for a live working system of substantial complexity, right? If you're raising 65 mil, you know, that's kind of what, a Series D kind of number, right? So these projects where you basically give Series D funding to a seed round project are... Um, shall we say, exploring an otherwise inaccessible portion of the risk landscape, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're going out and they're swinging big. You don't necessarily expect the tokens to be issued quickly because they've promised to build some piece of global infrastructure off the back of that. Um, but I think I want to kind of draw a line here between the projects which are outright malfeasance and the projects which are simply youthful optimism with stupid amounts of money. And <clears throat> what I'm not seeing a lot of, and I'm not seeing no cases, is people running the ICOs as scams, raising huge amounts of money, and then just partying it down into the ground. Mm-hmm. Right? Mostly if they're erring, they're erring by hiring huge teams and then doing work which is not necessarily particularly well architected. But I don't think the majority of these projects are intentionally fraudulent, Mm -hmm. right? They might be, you know, cack-handed to the point where it's equivalent to fraud, but I think the vast majority of them are fundamentally well-intentioned, inexperienced, and overfunded. Well, and I think saying that you need between 10 and 50 million indicates to me that you haven't really architected what the project looks like and how um, with enough clarity to decide whether you need 10 or 50 million. And that's by no means the worst thing that we've seen in those kind of domains, right? I mean, think of all the projects that raised money in Ether when Ether was, you know, up $75, and then Ether hits $1,200. Well, whatever they were going to do for a living, they've now got a factor 10 uplift just on price volatility. Uh, and that sort of stuff, you know, it's producing a bunch of very, very peculiar institutions, which I think are closer to random lottery university tenure than they are to either startups or financial instruments in the normal sense. In a sense, what we're doing is lottery funding institutions. And some of these institutions will produce tons of great software and tons of great services. Others will vanish without trace. But I think it's almost wrong to think of these things as being startups because a startup with a 20-year burn rate might as well be a university department. Well, I think the other thing that um, also came out this week as well um, was some data produced by Autonomous Next, which was looking at the um, amount of ICO money raised over the course of the year. And so essentially in September, um, ICOs raised around $300 million. And in January, that number was $2.4 billion. So there's a number of factors. You know, is the project reliable? Does it stand up under scrutiny? Do you actually need the money? Is the regulator going to step in? So I think 
by just looking at the amount of investment going down. There's a number of factors um, that are impacting some of these projects, and probably for the better. And I think the number one is probably that regulatory scrutiny. Mm. But if we price it in Ether or in Bitcoin, you'd see much less volatility in the amount of money going into the ICOs. And it also depends how it's measured. Do you take total raise the month it's concluded? I mean, monthly measurements are actually a bit misleading. But pulling back on the regulatory front that Vinay mentioned, it's quite interesting too. We hear so much about how the world's regulators are going to follow the SEC's lead. Is that what we're seeing here? The Australian regulators are following the SEC's lead and actually shutting projects down, or are they taking a different path? Mm, Very interesting questions. I should imagine we'll see very much more of the same kind of story of regulatory intervention over the coming months. Watch this space. So moving us on to the next story, this one is from iq-mag.com. Ticketmaster buys into blockchain with upgraded acquisition. So to be clear, Upgraded is a San Francisco-based ticketing startup and it converts traditional tickets into secure interactive digital assets protected by blockchain technology. So this is effectively a protection against fraud of uh, production of tickets and and potentially tout uh, intervention as well in in ticket purchases. Um, So Andy Korned, apologies Andy if I'm saying your name wrong, founder and CEO of Upgraded, Upgraded leverages blockchain to maximise trust for ticket holders, give control and flexibility to content owners and data to teams and performers. We're proud of what we've built and looking forward to working with the incredible team at Ticketmaster to help us scale. So what do we think of this? Are we looking at a true use case here for blockchain technology? Well, I mean, everything to do with ticketing is broken, right? I mean, these huge aftermarkets, you can never get tickets for what you want. Everything is, you know, available at a price, bum, bum, bum. So... It ought to get fixed. It's really broken. Tickets are basically financial instruments. Why not? Right? Um, whether or not they're doing it in a way which will actually result in a better market for concert goers, I'm not sure that fixing ticketing is enough. You know, you'd like to be able to do things. And uh, you know, um, do you know Imogen Heap has a blockchain project called Mycelia? Yeah. So we're pretty close to that project. And you know, the kind of discussions about what musicians want is things like rich access to data about where their music is being listened to so that they can do things like speculate on where they might have concerts and pre-sell tickets to fans that are refundable if the concert doesn't happen. Those kind of things. So if you're just taking the existing paper ticketing system and adding a bit of blockchain on top of it, eh, but if you're looking at, you know, Shifting the risk onto fans for where concerts will or won't be performed, you know, comprehensively changing the way that we're you know doing things like tour planning and the rest of this kind of stuff, all of which drop out very naturally once you accept a ticket as a financial instrument, um, could be properly revolutionary. And you know, they have the scale to actually change the way that works. You know, and, and so I think that there's an enormous potential there. I just don't know whether this project is radical enough to get there. Yeah. But maybe you start with the boring case and work out. Well, potentially, yes. I mean, I suppose in this instance here, we have Ticketmaster that's an intermediary between the fans and the musicians. And what you mentioned there is looking at disintermediating these kind of ticket um purchasing processes. Well, I think and not only that, in this particular case, that you know, they're talking about the token being non-fungible, right? So it is also disintermediating the the scalper or the secondary market that, you know, Bruce Springsteen comes to town, you know, a $100 ticket is now $1,200, right? Um, and that's a challenge, not just for the fan, the end consumer, who now doesn't, can't access those tickets because they're priced out of their, you know, price bracket, um, 
but the artist isn't receiving any uplift from this, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, it's no different than stealing royalties, in my opinion. So I think that is potentially interesting. I think coupled with the rich data of an A, as you're saying, um, could be value additive to a business. I'm still just not entirely sure why it needs to be on the blockchain to be able to do some of this stuff. One thing we hear a lot about is how the blockchain has potential to reduce costs. Transaction costs, in theory, will be coming down once things are more transparent and flow more smoothly. Maybe costs could be something that could be tackled here, given with the extra profits going to whom? To upgrade it to Ticketmaster or to the actual audience or to the performers? I think what would be really cool is if we're going to be able to program this, it would be interesting, I think, as a differentiator, if you could program something in that you were allowed to t- sell the tickets on on a secondary market but only at cost or if you were able to recoup whatever that markup was and split that between either the, the venue or the artist or whomever I mean that would be a more distributed uh, use for for the uptick in price at least it would seem more fair mm. and you know if you take that and make it possible to buy the tickets before the concert is confirmed yeah, that's then, you know, if you've got get, you know, half of the tickets sold, you pre-sell half the tickets for a venue. At that point, you know the concert will happen, then the rest of them sell. And the early investors that bought the tickets when it still wasn't sure the concert was happening then get some proportion of those kind of proceeds. Well, and maybe it becomes like this new form of, of crowdsourcing, not necessarily for a product, but for the right to, you know, does Bruce Springsteen want to go? I don't know why I'm focused on Bruce Springsteen. But, you know, does he <laughs> Do want to... something to tell us, Yana? No. Um, I'm, you know, I don't want to say I don't like the boss, but he's not like my fave. Um, but does he want to go to Inverness? You know, maybe that's not on his tour schedule. But if the people of Inverness rally, you know, maybe they can almost like a ballot system bring Bruce to Inverness. And there's and there's the data that we get in the meantime. That's right. That's right. And that that to me is the real potential in these kind of plays. It's not taking the existing paper tickets and replacing them. It's changing the risk architecture of the entire industry so that everybody gets more of what they want at lower risk. And, you know, that's what we're really shooting for. Mm-hmm. Okay, before we go on, uh, Simon has got a few words to say. So this episode is brought to you by R3. Uh, Corda is the only blockchain platform that removes costly friction in business transactions. That's hard to say, and I don't know if they're the only one. Um, but it does enable institutions to transact directly using smart contracts while ensuring the highest levels of privacy and security. Um, <laughs> I love this one. Corda was recently described as compelling but strange. I, I, I think that's very true of Todd McDonald. Um, and, and at R3, they tend to agree. It's certainly compelling. Um, and I think it was getting. Greenspan that did that review is a really good blog post. Uh, he kind of breaks down the quarter architecture and he just goes, it's really, really compelling, but it's really, really strange. Um, and it's, it, it's a really good technical sort of teardown of everything that it works uh, and how it works. Um, so R3 built the world's only blockchain platform suited to um, businesses in every industry, they say, um, with 100% interoperability between the open source and enterprise versions. It's truly unique. Um, <laughs> you can unlock the power of blockchain for your business head on over to r3.com for more on the Corda platform and request a free 60-day trial of Corda Enterprise okay so our next story is from Forbes.com security company G4S to offer crypto custody service so multinational security services company G4S is stepping into the world of crypto by offering offline storage to protect digital assets from criminals and hackers G4S said that it started working with a as yet unnamed cryptocurrency exchange we have a quote here from Dominic McIver, senior risk, an- 
Senior Risk Analyst at G4S. Our security solution is built on a foundation of vault storage. We not only take the assets offline, but break them up into fragments that are independently without value and store them securely in our high security vaults, out of reach of cyber criminals and armed robbers alike. So what do we think about this? I I read somewhere that there was currently 1.1 billion US dollars of uh, crypto assets that had been stolen and hacked. Uh, most of those were stored in hot wallets, so they were they were attached. Uh, they were online, basically. They weren't they weren't in cold storage. Um, G4S custody. There's there's quite a lot going on here. There's a lot going on in custody, full stop. I mean, it seems to be the one thing that most of the capital market sector is focusing on. But in a way, where is the attention going? Companies like G4S, which itself is a fascinating company, are is it value added that they are offering crypto services when it's not to their core competency? They're not even crypto people. G4S is not just any company. It's one of the largest security companies in the world. And according to Wikipedia, they're the largest private employer in the world. They're big. They do prisons. They do embassies. They do nuclear facilities. They do cash storage. They don't have a lot of experience in crypto custody. So if you are a big fund, are you going to entrust your crypto to them? I'm sure they have good military experience, but... I don't know that crypto needs an armored van. And essentially that, you know, that's what they do, right? They come along, they got the helmets, they got their cases, they got the money. Um, to me, and I would love your view on this, Noel, it feels like another incumbent um, that provides a similar type of service in traditional finance, entering the space to say, well, we move cash around, so we're going to do this cool thing with vaults. Now, lots of people offer vault storage with their cold storage offering, underground vaults, just like the Bank of England. Um, and key sharding isn't anything new. That's essentially what they're saying. They're going to rip up your little um, private key into multiple pieces and store them in different places. So, to me, this just feels like another incumbent entering the space, which we're seeing a proliferation of, right? Um, and how is this any different than, you know, Fidelity announcing that they're going to enter the space or, you know, somebody like Northern Trust saying they're going to provide adjacent services to funds, right? To me, it feels very similar, albeit more... It's, manual. It's similar from security. I would argue maybe that G4S probably have more experience with safeguarding things like that. But it's very, very different in that Fidelity is a financial business. So they will sell you the crypto via their various intermediaries, obviously, but then they'll store it for you as well. I think that for companies like Fidelity and the other large Wall Street financial institutions coming into this, they see crypto as a way to drive business to the dealing, which arguably could end up being higher margin. But the crypto first companies, again, there's not that many of them. No, indeed. I, mean, I guess the question here is what's the worst that could happen? Right? I mean, they could lose the money, which would make them like how many institutions in the blockchain space, or they could keep the money. You know, it's kind of they're either going to get it right or they're going to get it wrong. And if they get it right, it will be business as usual. And if they get it wrong, it will be kind of hilarious. Well, I have experience working for for an exchange that stores 100% of assets in cold storage using a vault-like system or a vault system. Um, So in that scenario, if you have a multi-sig key sharded, whatever your your process is, um, and, and somebody is going to the vault or one of 20 people maybe going to the vault or three people are going to different vaults, um, 
that's one pseudo-anonymous person that leaves one venue and goes to another at different times of the day. You know what I mean? If you now have an armored van pulling up in front of your office and loading up a bunch of scraps of paper to take them off to the vault, it almost seems like you're drawing attention to yourself, like, hey, the crypto van's here, all the crypto's getting picked up, as opposed to just some random person walking down the street in jeans and a hoodie. Hiding in plain sight. Correct. Yeah. Fully prepared to eat the evidence if something goes wrong. <laughs> eat yeah. the pen drive. Yeah, all, all the keys printed very carefully, beauty barcodes, rice paper. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it is also interesting to see non-crypto businesses moving into this yeah. space. That does, to some extent, give it legitimacy. On the other hand, it could make it more fragile because we don't know what quality criteria they're using, what their insurance policies are going to be like. And if we do see funds using these companies because of the security that they have, they could be putting the system perhaps more at risk? Insurance is a great question. So, you know, if you have companies like Coinbase, for instance, that are able to get, you know, the capped, whatever it is, 200 million that are, that's on offer, um, what kind of insurance policy are they getting? And is this going to be, you know, something that's going to be underwritten differently? Yeah. Um, because in essence, you're storing somebody else's assets. If I'm an exchange and I take these assets in, at least they're kind of sitting in my environment. Now I'm then handing them off to get another, a fourth party, essentially. It's not even a third party anymore. Another interesting twist, though, with G4S is that they have experience with cash storage, whereas the other incumbents getting into custody, crypto custody, have experience with asset storage, which is an entirely different thing. It's also on servers, whereas crypto is more like cash, especially when you're going into cold storage. It is more physical, being a bearer instrument. So it's a different angle. Again, I'm not sure it's more reliable. The time will tell, but it is a different approach, different criteria needed, different reputation behind it. It's a much more boring class of heist movie. (laughs) (laughs) Stealing small pieces of paper. Oh, it'd be like one of those, yeah, where they have to go through the shredded papers and line up all of them. That's sharding. (laughs) Physical sharding. Okay, moving us on to the next story. So this one is from Finextra.com. Goldman Sachs invests in BitGo. Goldman Sachs and an investment firm set up by billionaire Michael Novogratz have invested in BitGo, a startup promising to help institutional investors securely store their cryptocurrency. So similar theme to the story we had before. Rani Yarad, an MD of Goldman Sachs's principal strategic investments group, said greater institutional participation in the digital asset market requires secure and regulated custody solutions. We view our investment in BitGo as an exciting opportunity to contribute to the evolution of this critical market infrastructure. Very true. I mean, it's a continuation from the story before, really, custody. This is especially intriguing when you take into account reports just from a few months ago that Goldman Sachs was considering starting that, launching their own crypto custody service. So is that what they're doing here by taking a stake in BitGo? We do need to point out that the stake is very small. They were part of an investment they did with Galaxy. We don't know the exact amount, but Goldman plus Galaxy invested $15 million, which is just over a quarter of the total amount raised. Again, there were previous raises. This is a series be, if I'm not mistaken. So it's a very small participation. I can't see Goldman making a move on BitGo. But maybe what they are looking to do is 
outsource the crypto custody, which would make a lot of sense from the end user's point of view, from the fund's point of view, more security. You don't really want your dealers and your your custody people to be the same. Or maybe they are still thinking about starting their own crypto custody service. We can't lose sight of the fact that BitGo started life as and still is a kick-ass technology company, and they pioneered multi-sig among many others. Maybe Goldman will end up being a client. Maybe it's taking taking a stake in its technology provider. Yeah, I mean, I would look at this as being, you know, everybody thinks that pension funds are eventually going to go after Bitcoin in a big way. Um, I think a lot of people are building out infrastructure where we only need a little bit of it, right? I mean, they're either going to upsell to their existing client bases or they're going to get, you know, a few new clients doing this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, once it works, nobody's ever going to talk about it again. Mm-hmm. You know, until it, something happens. Until something happens, right? Yeah, and we'll talk about it a here. lot. Yes, and then it'll be like, oh, we knew this was going to happen. Oh, <laughs> ouch. Okay, moving on to the next story. So this one is directly from DTCC.com. It's a press release announcing study results demonstrating that DLT, distributed ledger technology, can support trading volumes in the US equity markets. So the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, DTCC, premier post-trade market infrastructure for the global financial services industry, announced the results of a benchmark study which demonstrated the first time ever that DLT is capable of supporting average daily trading volumes in the US equity market of more than 100 million trades per day. This is not a big deal. 100 million is, you know, a tiny amount compared to the amount of trading that goes on. So the, this sounds like a press release for the sake of showing that, yay, we're doing blockchain. doesn't seem terribly practical yet. And, and they're definitely not talking about doing this on Bitcoin. Okay, that's also interesting. And again, the scalability with, the, with private enterprise, and Vinay, you know a lot about this, well, it was never really in question? Yeah, exactly. I mean, th- there's no reason for a permissioned ledger to be any slower than a database. So, you know, okay, the verified permissioned ledgers are fast, but permissioned ledgers are also basically just databases with digital signatures. So, eh, eh, eh. I mean, it's definitely a press release, but I'm not sure that it's news. Yeah, and it's exciting that they're doing this. I mean, capital markets, I think, for me, are one of the most interesting potential applications of this. But this isn't fascinating yet. I mean, when we start to go live with actual stock exchanges on a blockchain platform, private or public, whatever, then it starts to get interesting. I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon, though. Yeah, and this is very much replicating existing market infrastructure with uh, DTCC acting as the central counterparty. Well, last week, um, also uh, generated from the DTCC, the um, digital asset platform, so um, digital asset holdings Mm -hmm. platform, um, they have confirmed, so a um, consultancy called GFT did a number of tests and confirmed that 27,000 trades per second can occur on the digital asset platform um, with complete efficiency. So they've they've tested this over a period of days, hours. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but so twenty seven thousand trades per second is actually proving that yes, could could they go in and, and replace that that system in ASX? Um, and the answer apparently is tests say yes. Tests say yes. But what's the scalability like? Twenty seven thousand again. It's not that much. And when they see transactions, are they talking about orders? Or are they talking about actual number of units moving? I don't know. No. Not specified, is it? I can't tell it's, a, it's a slight. Again, it, does it cost the same amount of capacity to sell a million shares as to sell one share? 
Mm. More information required. So, And the interesting part of this is that they're choosing to release it and choosing to talk about it and choosing to put the attention on it. Well, where they're going after that, I guess we have to wait and see. Yes, and we also have to bear in mind that it is Cybos Week and Money 2020 Week as well. Uh-huh. Yes, good point. So moving us from the enterprise space back into crypto land, this one is from ethereumworldnews.com. Cardano, ADA, co-founder Charles Hoskinson, dissatisfied with Cardano foundation performance. So in an open letter to the Cardano community from IOHK and Emergo, Charles Hoskinson and Ked Kadama um, publicly pointed out the lack of performance coming from the third entity that forms the project, Cardano Foundation. So his dissatisfactions included lack of strategic vision from the council, the absence of a clear public plan for how the foundation will spend its funds to benefit the community, lack of transparency in the foundation ongoings, lack of financial transparency. As of October, despite several requests, the foundation has still refused to publish the addresses holding its allocation of ADA. So he's called for the foundation to voluntarily subject itself to the Swiss authorities for a complete audit of all the foundation's financial transactions and major decisions to be conducted and for the results to be released to the general public. So what do we think about this? This doesn't happen too often, uh, whether it's in the cryptocurrency space or, in fact, the enterprise space in in legacy land uh, where people come out against a um, organisation they are in some way affiliated to. It's not the first time we've heard about Swiss foundations, though. I mean, Swiss foundations must be pretty darn complicated. Well, so the issue, I think this is basically another story like Tezos, Mm -hmm. where a commercial entity raises a bunch of money, parks it in a Swiss foundation, and then expects the Swiss foundation to do what they want it to do. But the Swiss foundation has independent governance, and the independent governance looks at what they're signed up for doing and then tries to do it. So I think that this is one of these things where complicated corporate structures with a lot of expectations of social cohesion hit the legal reality that the foundation directors are not the same people as the uh, commercial directors. They're two separate entities. They've got two separate sets of governance. They do two separate things. And then people turn around and are like, wait, what has happened? So to me, this looks exactly like Tezos, just at a 100th scale level. Why would you set up a Swiss foundation anyway? Is it for tax reasons? Um, So the Swiss foundations, I mean, here I'm going a little beyond what I would, you know, uh, say in writing, right? So I'm being a little loose here. But the Swiss foundations are a little bit like being in the FCA sandbox, right? It's a flexible relationship with the regulator. You sort of show the regulators what you have in mind. The regulators take a look at it and go, "Mm, yeah, that looks all right. That's clearly not fraudulent or illegal, let us know if anything changes. So I think it's largely a chance to work with regulators that are very, you know, hands-on oversight, detailed understanding of what you're doing and then make a case-by-case decision rather than regulators that grab the rule book and then take a best guess about how to apply it. So I think a lot of people went there for that kind of hands-on, you know, light touch but dedicated focus regulation. And then what we're beginning to hit is that in that kind of experimental environment, not everything goes the way you expect it to go. But I think also, too, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not completely sure of what I'm about to say, but there is this uh, structure where you can put a foundation in place and you can hire a Swiss person um, or certainly a European person that can get one of the 
17 visas that Zug hands out every year. And so you put a foundation in place because you're going to have a really tiny team because the rest of your development team is going to be elsewhere, right? So if you take out the decentralized nature and and how um, decentralized workforces have their own unique challenges. But if you have basically a figurehead or a very small team of people that are put in charge of the money that's gotten parked there, because you can't bring the whole project in, because while the Swiss like the foundation to sit there, they don't want you bringing in hundreds of people. They're not going to give you visas for that. So then there is this disconnect between the strategy and the execution. And I think that's another one of these challenges with the foundation model. Am I am I right there? Um, certainly Ethereum, which I was part of, uh, had a relatively small team in Switzerland and a very large development lab in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that pattern does tend to replicate with distributed teams. Uh, I don't know how much of that is driven by Swiss visa regulation, but certainly there is a... Um, I think there is a minimum size of team you need in Switzerland. Um, and Which ideally they would prefer if it was filled with Swiss residents, right? I mean, they're they're open, but it it that that that's the challenge with Switzerland. I think everybody thinks, oh, great, we're going to take our project to Switzerland, until you find out that maybe you can't bring a hundred people into Switzerland. Absolutely, absolutely. I think all you need, though, for the foundation is just one or two of the directors, right? Right, which is where I'm saying you've got one or two directors that have the pot of cash, and then you have the rest of the community going, hey, guys, what are you doing over there with all this money? And they're like, well, we're, I don't know. Justifying our existence. Fondue. 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 It is a bit concerning that they won't publish the addresses where the funds are held. Yeah, I mean, the other side of this, though, is it's a regulated entity. It has a regulator, right? You know, it's very unlikely, given the people involved in running the foundation, that it's any kind of outright fraud. Um, Because they're, you know, I mean, you know, late career financial professionals, is my understanding. It looks like it's run by grown-ups. So, you know, at that point, you have to assume that they have the reasons for doing what they're doing. Um because they're not dumb enough to have done something stupid and illegal. Yeah. So yeah. they're still existing in their financial career. Yeah, you see what I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean... What are the chances of them not disclosing the addresses for security reasons? Well, that's another aspect to it, isn't it? And I, I think if we're on the run by grown-ups part, if you kind of change the question, is publishing an opening, open letter to the community um, expressing dissatisfaction at the... Um, at the foundation's performance, the right move? Mm. Or perhaps could something of a little bit more subtle and, and encouraging been published? I guess what we don't know is, was that already done? I mean, I suppose there's a potential that this could have been a last-ditch effort to get somebody's attention, or it could have been a snarky first move that, in, mm. in, in your uh, estimation, would have been probably not it's a, the best way it's a question and, and like yeah. you I don't know what um, what the back history between their communication are uh, but if you do want to hear more from Charles Hoskinson and Cardano listen to episode 43 where Colin GSAS himself interviews Charles okay so stories we didn't have time to cover another one from coindesk.com startup bringing blockchain privacy to central banks wins 15 million dollars in funding so this next one's from coindesk com again rwanda starts tracking conflict metal tantalum with blockchain and finally from you guessed it coindesk.com 
Voldemort strikes again? Question mark. A new crypto white paper has his name on it. He who must not be named has now been named in a in a crypto white paper. Interesting. Get your teeth around that. And on to our final segment, tweet of the week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. This one comes from Paul Everton, who goes by the handle Real Paul Everton. He must have had problems with fakes before. And the tweet goes as such. The Bitcoin as a stablecoin era is so bad for crypto. No institutional investor in the world would enter in a supposedly high-risk, volatile market that acts like this. Fingerprints of market manipulation are everywhere. That's why the SEC keeps de- declining an ETF. And with it is a, uh, a chart depicting some of the Bitcoin price and uh, shenanigans around that. So what do we think? Do we think that's the reason why the SEC keeps declining an ETF? Um, I mean, if you were the SEC, I think the question would have to be, what do we have to gain by regulating one? I mean, you know, do we want more Americans throwing their money into this kind of crazy thing as part of their pension planning? Or do we want to keep this stuff kind of corralled up until we see how it all washes out? So I I think that their foot dragging on this kind of stuff is part of a more general sense that it's all going to get hosed down with bleach and then they'll see what's left stand. And yes, there could be manipulation, probably is to some extent, especially since volumes have been declining. But we can't assume that the price is stable because of the manipulation. Well, I mean, that said, um, it would be staggering if the markets were not manipulated, given that every market that looks like this in history has had to be regulated to stop manipulation. So we'd have to argue for some miraculous reason that it wasn't being manipulated. Uh, the question is maybe then, is the manipulation effective or not? And then you see this period where there's just a straight line for price, and you're just kind of like, wait, what? stochastic, random walk? Wow, that looks stabilised. <laughs> and you know that's the point where there's a certain smell test thing of just like, yeah, okay, right? So maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's being manipulated, maybe. Um, we don't know, we don't have any evidence of that around this table. I think we can look at when the futures um, contracts settle and take a look at the price and yeah. form an opinion. And there is, there is some evidence pointing to wash trading, and obviously they're spoofing, that's fairly easy to prove. So it yeah. depends also, I guess, how you define manipulation. But the flatlining of the price, I mean, that's more complicated, and I think it's more to do with everyone sitting and waiting, and the bear market in spite of the good news that the sector is constantly getting. Mm. Yeah. I mean, for me, as an old-timer in this game, it's hard to see $6,000 prices as a bear market. True. <laughs> Very true. But of the bear, by bear market, I mean when you're getting Goldman coming in, you're getting Fidelity coming in, you're getting all sorts of good news coming through that the, the institutions waiting on the sideline have apparently have allegedly been waiting for and the price doesn't move. Mm. I was watching the price when the Fidelity announcement dropped because this is what the institutions had been waiting for and crickets. Yeah. Because the institutions aren't holding. I mean, that's that's we've been saying they're not entering the space because they're waiting for regulatory clarity. They're waiting for price stability. They're waiting for custody. They're waiting for so they're not holding. So the the holders that are holding are like, well, I don't you know care about fidelity. But I mean, if they wanted their price stability, they've got the price stability. So it would be ironic if the market manipulation is with the intention of holding the price stable enough, the institutions will come in. (laughs) 
And that, I mean, this is the thing about the whole Bitcoin space is there are so many, you know, kind of secret masters, the kind of Bitcoin Illuminati running around, you know, representing, you know, early whales, huge mining interests and all the rest of that stuff. You know, you know that there's a room where it happens and you know that that room is probably something that the SEC would be extremely interested in hearing the discussions of. And, you know, that is sort of the natural shape of markets, right? If they're not regulated, there is going to be a room where it happens. The general public are not going to be in that room. And that's the reason we have rules. And I think there is still this fundamental question about whether the crypto frontier is defined by the ability to do kind of, you know, wildcat IPOs, throw around imaginary money at enormous rates to finance highly speculative, crazy new technology development, and we accept it's a wild west, or we're going to attempt to you know, bring this thing in, regulate, manage, turn it into the part of the real world, at which point it loses its utility as a way of funding crazy new technology. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it would be quite interesting if... You know, we had a cryptocurrency or a jurisdiction or some kind of maneuver where we simply framed this as, okay, so this one will never be regulated. If you put your money into it, we guarantee you'll lose every penny. And other than that, knock yourself out. I think it'd be quite interesting to just figure out how to corral off some area, make sure everybody understands it's a wilderness and, and just let them get on with it. Like Hamsterdam in the wire. We were just talking about Hamsterdam. Hamsterdam. you in our minds. <laughs> <laughs> Not that crypto's a drug. Anyway, uh, that's about all we have time for, folks. So just to remind you all, this podcast is made by 11FS, and they're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. Want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday? Well, just hit subscribe. The button's right there. And if you're already subscribed, why don't you throw us a review? We understand you might not want to give us five stars because of Colin G. Platt, but a review nonetheless would be awesome. And so where can people find out more about you? (laughs) Where can people find out more about you, Noel? You can find me on Twitter at Noel in Madrid, which is where I live, and of course check out coindesk.com. Vinay. Um materium.com, spelled a bit like Ethereum, but Materium. Excellent. And Tina? You can find me on Twitter at Tina Taylor. Okay. And I'm also on Twitter at Seronimo. Or you can go to clearmatics.com forward slash careers or github.com forward slash clearmatics. And so a big thanks to the amazing production team here at 11FS, our producers Petrit Barisha and Laura Watkins and Michael Bailey, our editor. Thanks for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. <laughs>